This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Breeding marine aquarium fish for the hobby was just a dream several decades ago until a then relatively unknown fisheries biologist named Martin Moe started his company, Aqualife Research, in the early 70s, breeding clownfish. Martin is now considered by many the father of marine aquarium fish aquaculture and has many fascinating stories to share about the field. Join us as my guest Martin Moe reminisces on the past and looks to the future of marine aquarium fish aquaculture. We'll be right back after these messages. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Martin Moe, founder of Aqualife Research and marine aquarium fish aquaculture pioneer. Thanks very much for joining us, Martin. Oh, my pleasure. So I have a lot of questions I like to ask our guests early on to kind of get a little bit of uh, information on what got you into the hobby. So what, what was your very first fish and first aquarium? Okay, my first aquarium was a freshwater aquarium. And I was in college at the time. And what I wanted to do was to work with guppies. And I wanted to get into the uh, prospects. This was back in the late 50s of rearing guppies and playing with the genetics of guppies and working on new strains and things of that sort. And it almost worked. I did have some tanks set up with with guppies and I did do some breeding with guppies. But uh, the the business of life really made it uh, difficult to... uh, uh, to continue to do that. And so that kind of eventually drifted uh, drifted into the past. So then what was your very first marine aquarium? Well, my very first marine aquarium was probably in the mid-60s. And yeah, it was because I was doing a master's program at the uh, University of South Florida. And at the same time, I was a senior fisheries biologist for the state marine laboratory. I, I was working at that time on a variety of different projects, including uh, fish biology and age and growth and reproduction of the red grouper. But I was taking a course in animal behavior. And I figured for my project for that course, I set up about a dozen aquariums, uh, marine aquariums, and collected two different types of blennies 
from the Tampa Bay area and set them up and observe their, their spawning activity and their behavior as they form pairs and spawn and put their eggs on, on substrates. And, and I used that as my project for the Animal Behavior Laboratory. And that was my first really personal type of marine aquarium system. So you, you talked a little bit about your work as a fisheries biologist and your uh, degree. What, what influenced you to study marine biology and to kind of get involved with, I guess, the fishery side of it before you, you did aquaculture? Well, I was always interested in the water. I was a competitive swimmer, and, and I did a lot of spearfishing and snorkeling in the uh, Tampa Bay area. And I got a degree from Florida State University, a major in biology, a minor in education. And so the year, the months after I graduated, that was in June of 1960. Anyway, I needed to get a job. My wife was pregnant and uh, I had a college degree. And so I got a job teaching in a junior high school, middle school as we call it now. And that lasted a year. And after the end of that year, I knew that I was not cut out for that particular um, occupation. And so I didn't know what to do at, at that time. I, I looked into being an insurance salesman, but I wasn't a member of a country club, so I couldn't get a job there. I looked into a donut route, and uh, that didn't come through. So I was going to go back to my old job as a lifeguard. But then I saw an ad in the paper for a fishery biologist or a marine biologist at the State Marine Lab in St. Pete. And I hunted that. I really persevered and showed up there every week and uh, talked to them and I passed the, the state test and they finally gave me a job. And I replaced the ichthyologist who, who Dr. Victor Springer, who then went on to the Smithsonian. And so within a week, I became an ichthyologist at the lab before I could even spell the word. And anyway, that was the, the position for me. And I spent 10 years at that lab doing many different projects, uh, dealing with marine biology and marine organisms and fisheries biology. So we have, I guess we have the fact that you decided not to go into teaching middle school, that you weren't a country club member and that you didn't get a donut job to uh, the uh, beginning of marine ornamental aquaculture. I like that. <laughs> yeah, that worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you, you mentioned in some of your writing that I've read that the modern marine aquarium hobby began in the early 60s. What did some of those early marine aquarium stores look like and what kind of fish were they selling? Well, it was mostly all the aquarium stores back then were freshwater aquarium stores. And usually, not all of them, but a few of them, had a little back corner somewhere where they had three or four marine tanks and they had some fish in there. And they catered to the very few adventurous souls who went into the, uh, the keeping of a marine aquarium. And uh, all the tanks back then were, well, they were glass tanks, but they were held together with stainless steel frames that corroded under the influence of salt water and they all had slate bottoms and they were attached to the slate bottoms with a kind of a putty that went all around it. It was a typical freshwater tank of the time and if, if you had a light over it, it was kind of a weak little incandescent lamp light that was on top of it. So the marine aquariums of that time were basically an offshoot of the freshwater aquarium industry, and they and they were uh, established as you establish a freshwater tank, not in, in more primitively than you do today. And what kind of fish were real common back then on the marine yeah. side? 
On the Marine side, there wasn't a whole lot of them at that time. And most of the most of the fish that are popular today, and this I'm talking a little bit later in the in the later sixties perhaps, were available. Bob Schroeder, who started who who was a marine collector here in the Keys, was very instrumental in beginning the marine aquarium hobby in the fifties and, and in the sixties. And he collected a lot of a lot of fish from the Keys back then, and the fish that were available basically were things like gobies and blennies and clownfish and damselfish and quite a few of the other relatively common shallow water seashore fishes. So how successful were marine aquarium keepers back then? Not very. Uh, <laughs> what happened back then is that it was still an offshoot of the uh, freshwater hobby. And there's a, quite a number of differences between the freshwater hobby and, and the marine hobby. And it was relatively easy to set up and run a freshwater tank. It, got, it was run in very quickly, whereas in a marine tank, it was not. And b- the problem with the nitrogen cycle and the buildup of toxic ammonia and toxic nitrite was very common. And the problem was that marine aquarists didn't know that. And uh, Schroeder was one of the first ones that re- really started an under-gravel-type aquarium. And this was good because it provided the substrate for the nitrifying bacteria to really to live in that substrate and to provide the sewage treatment, so to speak, the development of the establishment of the biological filter, the trip from ammonia to nitrite to nitrate. And that would happen over a period of weeks. But usually, the aquarist would set the tank up and put the fish in, and the fish would succumb to uh, ammonia poisoning, particularly if there was a lot of them in there. And so one of the critical elements for the success of the early marine tank or the, the marine aquarium aquarist was persistence. If they persisted and they started with just a few fish and they were hardy fish and eventually in a a couple of weeks the tank would kind of stabilize and they would be able to add more fish and they didn't really know why the tank was successful but they knew that if they went slowly it would gradually become more successful and so it it wasn't until uh, the 70s really that the nitrogen cycle as it applied to marine aquariums became more common knowledge. So, and that's probably pretty good, uh, pretty good information for even uh, folks that are setting up aquarium today because uh, it's definitely a tendency to overstock tanks. So they should be patient as well today, even um, as they were back true. then. Even, even with, the, with the development of, of live rock and the big deal with the live rock when it came in, it came in about the same time that the reef tanks were developed, but is that it carries the entire complex of bacteria that are needed, including even the, the bacteria that don't need oxygen, the anaerobic bacteria that can turn the nitrogen cycle around and take nitrate and produce nitrogen gas from it. So you have a much more stable aquarium if you use live rock to set it up, you know, rather than a sand bed or a gravel bed uh, subsurface aquarium uh, filter. So now you obviously made the leap into aquaculture. And I, I think you had mentioned you worked with a food fish aquaculture company. Can, what kind of, I guess, lessons did you learn from that? And how did you apply those to the early stages of your um, marine aquarium fish company? Okay, now that'll take about an hour. But I'll, I'll try, to, I'll try <laughs> to condense it down to a few minutes. And Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I, I was getting ready to go back to school to finish a doctorate on at the University of South Florida. I had already gotten a master's degree from them, and I was offered a job with Oceanography Mariculture Industries. It was kind of an awkward name. But anyway, to develop the technology for rearing pompano, which is a, a pelagic-egged subtropical uh, marine food fish. And I figured, well, if I continued on and got my doctorate, that was the kind of a job that I would want to take. And so after much thought and evaluation, I decided, well, I'm going to put the doctorate business on hold and I'm going to go take that job. And I did. And at that in that job, I was successful. I was the director of research for them. And I was successful in being able to develop the technology for uh, captive holding and captive spawning of pompano and for rearing the larvae all the way through to the juvenile stage. And that took a couple of years to do, three years to do. And some of the important breakthroughs at that particular time was that, first of all, we were using uh, 75-gallon glass tanks for the larval work. And I realized that the way the tanks were lit and the way the room was lit, the larvae, if they were searching for the food, they had a light-colored background. And in the natural environment, if you dive down in the Gulf Stream, for example, you get down a meter or two, and it's very bright on the surface, but it's kind of a dark blue all the way all around you. And larvae at that depth can have a dark background and a light surface, and they can see their planktonic prey more easily that way because it stands out against that black, uh, the dark background. So I put black plastic around my tanks, and I used uh, black tanks as well. And that made it at least, that seemed to me that it worked better than uh, just a transparent background. So that was one important breakthrough. And the other was that I was using wild plankton to feed the pompano larvae, and that was very problematic, not only in composition, but also in availability. And so a friend of mine, Phil Heemstra, who wound up being the ichthyologist in South Africa, called me one day, and he told me that he was in uh, Ruben Lasker's lab at Scripps out in California, and that Ruben was using a Japanese rotifer in his ecological experiments with herring larvae. And he said, you know, that might be something that might help you out. So I, I immediately got a hold of a Dr. Lasker, and I found out about the rotifers, and I had him tell me how to culture them and send me an aliquot of the rotifers, and we set it up, and we got it going in, in a large scale, and it worked. And I was able to raise large numbers of pompano juveniles that way. And, oh, that was a big trade secret for a while. And... <laughs> I remember the guys at the University of Miami, how did you do that? How did you do that? You know, and uh, I kept it quiet for a while, but eventually it leaked out. And so those were two things that I learned with my pompano culture that I was able to transfer to the uh, clownfish culture that I set up in my garage in, in St. Petersburg back in 70, 72, 73. We're going to take a break in maybe a couple of minutes, but before we do, I wanted to touch base with you and on the initial business and hatchery setup you had, and, and I guess how you decided to go for it, you know, in terms of the marine aquarium hobby and how you got your wife involved as well. Can you give us a, maybe an intro before we uh, go into a little more detail in the second half? 
Okay. Yeah, I knew that the culture of marine tropicals was a lot uh, easier to do in, in terms of, of facilities and, and funding and things like that than a commercial food fish because you could raise clownfish, for example, or, or I didn't know about clownfish at that particular point in time, but the value of your product was much greater at much less expense to create. And so I set up a very simple little system in my house and my garage in for uh, broodstock and for larval rearing. And I picked the clownfish to start with because some a few species of clownfish had been bred but the results were only one, two, or three maybe at a time. But I knew that they had a large egg, they had a large larvae, they had a small area of territory that they lived in, and this all made it very easy to achieve uh, reproduction in a small tank because they required a small territory. And it just seemed to be one of the most natural species for artificial culture. And so that was the species that I started with because of that. You know, I, I just I researched it and I figured that the clownfish would be the most practical species to do. And it also had a large, a large there was a large demand for it, as large a demand as you could have for marine fish back at that time. So it seemed to be exactly the fish to start with. And how did you get Barbara, your wife, involved? Was she uh, all for it or did you have to do some convincing? Well, uh, she went along with it, and her background is math and accounting, and so the company that we eventually that we set up, not eventually, it was actually fairly quickly after that, it was kind of down her alley to do the business end of it and to do the accounting and to do whatever needed to be done that way. And so then we started Aqualife Research after we had uh, been able to produce a few thousand fish in the garage because then we knew we had the technology. That's a perfect time to take a, a little break. So let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussions with Martin Moe, marine fish aquaculture pioneer after these messages from our sponsors. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Martin Moe, marine fish aquaculture pioneer. So you uh, you kind of got us to the point of starting Aqualife Research and you know some of the early successes with clownfish. Can you, I guess, give us maybe a little bit more of a sense of the numbers of tanks and how you were set up and how the other additional work that you did with other species became part of the business? Okay, well, we started in the house, you know, and in the garage. And basically, I had two rootstock tanks and I had two pairs of clownfish. And one pair produced quite well. It turned out that the other pair 
were two females, and they produced eggs, but of course nothing happened with them. I'm not sure exactly what to uh, draw from that, but that <laughs> but the, the one pair kept producing every two weeks or so. They would produce a, a, a large batch of eggs, and at first I was able to uh, raise eight of them, and then, then 15 of them, and then 200 of them, and pretty soon I was able to get several hundred of them through. And I had in the garage two 30-gallon tanks that were my larval tanks, and then I had a larger, maybe 110-gallon tank, shallow, six by three by two, grow-out type tank. And those, that was the first production uh, units that we had. And we were doing fairly well with, with the clownfish, and, of course, I realized that if it was going to be a business, you'd have to have more species. And so the next species that I, that I worked with was neon gobies because they could, you could do those in even smaller tanks. So I remember in the laundry room, we had about four tanks with neon gobies, and I got those going at, at the same time and learned the differences between their larval forms and what they required uh, compared with the clownfish which was actually just that they took a lot longer to get through the larval stage and uh, they required a little bit smaller rotifer, which was not, not particularly a problem at that point because you could just, they would pick out the smaller rotifers from the, from the total that you would put in there. Can you explain for uh, some of the folks that may not be familiar with, you know, kind of you're talking about the larval stages. So how do how does development with these marine species differ from, you know, some of the more common, you know, freshwater species? What are some of the stages that you have to deal with that you don't normally have to deal with with freshwater? Yeah, that's a big deal. And that was one of the reasons for my success, basically, because as a marine biologist and with a background in commercial marine fish culture, I knew the differences between freshwater fish and marine fish. And when you have a freshwater environment with freshwater fish and the fish spawn, there is no or very little of a planktonic stage of the larvae in the freshwater, in freshwater fish. The little fish are basically carbon copies of the adults and they go right into the benthos and they feed in the benthos, just as the marine fish, seahorses and the cardinal fish. The difference is that with marine fish, you have a planktonic form, a planktonic existence. The larvae is in the plankton, and you have to actually create a tank that was an adequate substitute for the planktonic environment, which is why I had the black plastic around it and why you fed rotifers and why you had aeration in the middle of the tank. And it was a bare tank that provided an adequate substitute for the planktonic environment. And then as they get through the, through the larval stage, which takes anywhere from uh, two to three weeks, depending on the species. Well, sometimes they go a lot longer than that, but most of the species we worked with, it was either 15 days to 25 days. And then you have to change the tank from a planktonic environment to a benthic environment, and you have to start feeding foods. They drop out of the plankton, so to speak. They go to the bottom of the tank. They take up residence in the corners and residence around the airstone. And at that point, you know that they've gone through metamorphosis or they're going through metamorphosis, and you can begin to feed them foods that they would take as a juvenile fish rather than as a larval fish. And so it's a process you have to watch carefully, and you have to be ready to change your husbandry practices depending upon the stage of development of the fish. So getting into the business part of it, how much did the fish cost back then, or how much did you sell them for, and also who were you selling these to? 
Well, that was interesting in that uh, there was a few small aquarium stores, you know, that would take a few fish, you know, each week. But for the most part, in order to sell large numbers of clownfish, which is what we were working with at that time, what I had to do was to work with freshwater fish farmers that had freshwater fish farms in the Ruskin area, which was below Tampa, a little bit south of Tampa. And these guys, you know, they were businessmen. And uh, it wasn't anything earth-shaking that I was producing marine fish because they didn't really realize what was going to happen, how important that was to the development of the marine industry. And they would say, well, look, we can get those for 10 cents each in the Philippines. And we get them shipped in, and by the time we get them here, we have maybe 35 cents in them. And so we'll pay you 35 cents for them. And I was a marine biologist. I wasn't really the kind of a business person that it needs to be. I was the kind of a guy that would go into the store with a bag full of fish and says, gee, you wouldn't want to buy some fish, would you? And so that's what I was selling them for, 35 cents each. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty cheap. But I think probably back then that must have been a decent amount of money, I would think. Well, yes and no, because they would sell them for a couple of dollars. And then I would go into an aquarium store and see my fish for $5 each. And I was getting 35 cents each for them. But (laughs) it goes at that time. Gradually, the price went up to about 50 cents. And I think eventually, towards the end uh, end of the time that I was in that business, we were selling them for almost a dollar, 80 cents, I think. So you started having some additional competition as things started to heat up a bit. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these early other producers? That's an interesting story, too. When I first started clownfish, it was kind of a big deal that clownfish had really been bred. But it was a big deal to a relatively small number of people that were interested in marine aquariums and breeding marine organisms. The first people, I started it and I sent this and I uh, sold some fish up there to aquarium systems and they got very interested in, in doing it, wanting to create a marine fish farm for themselves. And we talked about it and it, it just didn't work as far as what they wanted me to do to become a part of their organization. So I said no. And so then they hired Frank Huff, which Frank, I knew Frank very well. He worked for me when I worked for the marine lab over there. And so he became a competitor working for Aquarium Systems. And so we were developing the the technology in close proximity to each other. I had rented an old ice house on the shore of Baybara Harbor, and he had rented an ice cream factory further up the road, defunct, of course. And so we had tanks going back and forth, and we would get together at the Sunshine Bar every Friday and to try to feel each other out and see what successes or failures we'd had. And I had Chris Turk working for me at the time, and he was a graduate student at the University of South Florida. And he eventually went to SeaWorld out in California and developed a hatchery for them at that time. So there were the three of us there that were working uh, with marine tropical fish throughout most of the 70s. And it was interesting because we were friends and competitors. So what were some of the next kind of big species then? And I guess we're going to, because at the time we're going to probably have to make some major leaps, but, um, you know, through the 80s, 90s, what were some of the next big species that um, were kind of, uh, I guess, of, you know, major importance for the marine hobby? Well, the end of the rainbow for marine fish culture then and now 
was angelfish because they were perhaps one of the most important and, and significant and valued fishers in the industry. And about that time, the old ice house that I had uh, rented was uh, condemned by the city because they were going to expand the university over in that direction. And so I had to find some investment and make a move, uh, which I did. We moved down here to the Florida Keys. We had a little island connected by a causeway in, in Marathon. And the reason we moved to the Keys was to do angelfish. And it took us several years to develop a technology for rearing angelfish. And it was very difficult because I had reared about, oh, 15 different species of marine fish at that time. And so I thought angelfish would be easy. It would be just the same as the grunts and the snappers and the sea trout and the redfish that I had done. But it turned out that angelfish were a very different breed of fish. And uh, they required a certain antibiotic in the water at, at a specific time and a certain volume of water to be able to come through. But eventually, we were successful with rearing angelfish. And at that time, all I could get for the angelfish was 50 cents because they were being sold on the market for 50 cents collected from the wild. And it just wasn't economically feasible then to do that. And so what we did then was that we sold the company to Precision Valve Corporation. They had an island in the Bahamas, Walker's Cay, and we built a big farm on Walker's Cay. And I ran that farm for a few years, and then I got really burned out with rearing marine tropical fish. So I went into publishing and writing books. And eventually, that farm went out of business, and all of its equipment and technology and everything was bought by ORA, Oceans, Reefs, and Aquariums, at Harbor Branch up here in Fort Pierce. And I understand now that some of my original broodstock are still reproducing, are still producing nests up at ORA at this time. Definitely uh, fascinating how the Walker's Cay stuff changed hands, and I had heard the same, that some of those were still spawning as well, some of the original clownfish. So I, I guess kind of follow up and part of the question was, you know, what are the major species that have been spawned, you know, over the, the last couple of decades since you first started with the clownfish? And, and also, um, what do you see as the important future species and maybe challenges for a more successful marine aquarium fish production industry? Yeah, okay. Yeah, after I raised the angelfish, they were so difficult to do that no one else followed up on that for quite some time. And after that, probably the next biggest, well, there was a lot of different species of clownfish that were raised. There's a lot of different strains of unique types of the common clown and the, and, uh, the pakula clown that were developed and, and that have been developed. It's really amazing how much the genetics of that species has changed in a very short period of time. But there were a number of other fish that came into the market. Dottybacks, for example, were perhaps one of the next big species or big constellation of species that came to be developed by primarily by uh, Bill Addison down in uh, Puerto Rico with his Sequest farm. And then ORA developed uh, many different species of Dottybacks as well. And so there's a lot of small species, a lot of demersal spawners that have now different types of blennies, for example, that have come in. And one of the more recent things uh, in the last, oh, four or five years that is being developed is that there's a lot of very difficult species, uh, pygmy angels 
angels, for example, that are being developed, but it's more of on an experimental basis now than it is on a commercial basis. But that will change as time comes by. So I can see where there's going to be a lot more species of fish, some of the damsels, for example. There's oh, probably about 200 different species now of marine tropical fish that have been reared, and a lot of those will come into greater production as when the demand increases, and the demand will increase as the wild supplies are more and more restrictions are put upon the collection of wild species. In fact, some countries are banning importation of wild fish, and some countries are banning the collection of wild fish. So I think that's going to be one of the big stimuli to uh, enhance and to develop the culture of new species of marine tropical fish. Well, we're almost out of time. Uh, before I ask you for some of your final thoughts, I definitely wanted you to maybe talk briefly about the work you're doing with the diadema. Can you uh, kind of give us a, a, a summary of you know what, for folks that don't know what diadema are and, and what you've been doing with diadema recently? Sure, sure. Yeah, diadema, diadema antelarum is the long-spined sea urchin of tropical Atlantic reefs. And it's critical because it is the keystone herbivore of the reefs. There was a plague in 1983 that wiped them out all the way from the mouth of the Panama Canal to Bermuda within a period of a year. And as a result, macroalgae has flooded the reefs, has grown all over the reefs, has prevented settlement of corals, and has killed existing corals. And so it's very important, at least for the tropical Atlantic area, to be able to reestablish populations of diadema on the reefs. And you can't do that unless you can culture them. And I've been working on that now for six years. It's a very difficult culture to do. And there's, I've developed culture systems that are critical to be able to maintain that larvae through the 45 days that it needs to go through. And I'll be making a presentation of the details of the structure and operation of this culture system at the Breeders' Convention in Michigan in July. And then I'll also be talking about that at MACNA in September. The larvae are negatively buoyant, meaning that they sink to the bottom unless you have a lot of turbulence. And then if you have a lot of turbulence, they can't grow these long arms that they need for their pelagic existence. And so they die. So basically, you put them in a tank, they sink to the bottom, they die. You give them a lot of turbulence to lift them up, and they can't grow their arms, and they die. So I created a kind of a culture vessel that gives me a very slow, circular current that enables them, without water change, to stay in that system for the whole 45 days that they need. But I've also developed methods of changing water, methods of cleaning those systems. It's kind of a complex thing. But now that that is done and I have been able to produce numbers of juveniles through that system, now I'm wrestling with this dance between the effect of environmental toxins, primarily endocrine disruptors, on the hormonal systems of the development of the larvae versus the need for biological cues that stimulate them to go through the different phases of development. And I, I think I've got that pretty much under control now. So anyway, once we get this new rearing technology developed, then we can produce a lot of small juvenile diadema that will make up for the lack of natural recruitment in which we can establish reefs that are maintained uh, with this function of herbivory 
through artificial recruitment with cultured diadema. And if we can do that, then that will jumpstart. That will help the recovery of the corals on the reefs. Well, thanks again very much for all the work you've done and obviously major contributions to fisheries research as well as to marine aquarium aquaculture. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. So I do want to thank our guests, Martin Moe and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Martin, did you have any final words of, of wisdom or info that you'd like to give to our listeners? Well, the only thing that I would add, perhaps, is that the marine aquarium hobby and industry is very important. More important, perhaps, than you would first think, because it is the conduit between the problems that the marine environment has now and the public perception of the oceans. And the oceans are are in decline. There's a lot of problems that are facing them. And there's a lot of information that has to be transferred from the science and from the marine aquarium hobby to the public at large so that they can appreciate what the problems are and what the solutions are. And so for that reason, I think the marine aquarium hobby industry is very important to the future of our oceans. Well, thank you very much for that. And, and again, thanks for joining us. Please be sure to check out Martin Moe's guest page on Aquariumania to learn more about this incredible pioneer. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquariumania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. And be sure to check out my new book, An Animal Life, a novel written by me and three close friends and inspired by our time in veterinary school. Go to ananimallife.com for more information. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy and keep an eye out for cultured marine ornamental fish. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand. Only on PetLifeRadio.com.